Hello and good morning. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Uh, it is the 1st of January in a new year, 2021. I thought I would give a uh, lecture today and maybe um, even one uh, this afternoon because I've got a lot of material I've been accumulating, written a lot of lectures and I haven't been presenting them because I'm working on another project entirely. So I'm going to try to get a few of these out because I want to move this dialogue along a bit because I want to be able to get to um, back to the aging system itself. And all of the work I've been doing in these lectures for the last two weeks is to give you information so that when we get back to discussing uh, senescence, um, I can bring these other threads back in and not have to do a whole background on them. So I'm um, just reminding uh, my listeners. I want to thank my listeners for uh, keeping the uh, podcast uh, listened to. I have a very small following, of course, uh, that I've noticed compared to probably comedians and people that do politics and that. And uh, that's quite all right. I mean, I don't do anything like that. So this isn't entertainment. This is strictly to... Um, educate people in a better understanding of what biochemistry is, particularly in the biomedical field. That is how biochemistry impacts research uh, involving human health and conditions thereof. My biochemical background is uh, first was in plants, and then I developed my uh, research into insect biology and insect physiology, and then uh, later on into mammalian systems. And uh, that has been going on now for over three decades. So there are times uh, on this um, podcast, I will go back and discuss plant biochemistry, but I haven't done it in quite a while. Um, I did it with, I talked about natural products about a year ago. I think I did three lectures on it. And I go back and do that. Um, but right now I want to really emphasize um, how immunology is closely associated with the aging process. And uh, that's where we're um, jumping off right now this morning. All right, so my paper published in a journal that I have not looked at before called Biology Open. So that means it's an open journal on the internet. This was published in 2019 in October of that year. So about a year and what, two months ago. And I will put the citation in uh, the show notes. This paper reminds us that sphingolipids will interdigitate into cholesterol-rich domains. And that sphingolipids will do that because of their fatty acyl chains. And that will organize, along with the cholesterol, into a stable microdomain structure that can detach after enzymatic activity to form a translocatable membrane raft, which can, which can then serve to transport or remove receptors from the plasma membrane, but also transport and remove enzymatic activity. And, that, and by that, I don't simply mean tyrosine uh, autophosphorylation, that kind of receptor-mediated response. I'm also talking about enzymatic activity. And indeed, from that first sentence, if you were paying attention carefully, you'd see that these microdomains detach after enzymatic activity. That enzymatic activity is indeed one of the ones I'm talking about. And it is an enzyme we covered in great detail during the spring and early summer, and that is sphingomyelinase. 
So the lipid rafts operate biophysically with an associated lipid domain. And of course, with the aqueous cytosolic environment. Now, they also work in conjunction with the endocytic and exocytic flux through the Golgi networking and the endoplasmic reticulum, and independently via vesicular transport mechanisms, which of course are driven by further enzyme-mediated tailoring of the lipid fraction, thus altering fluidity and biological activity throughout that process. So these rafts can function to coordinate protein-protein interactions and associations, which have been well described for membrane surface receptors, as I mentioned at the beginning, as during the antigen-presenting APC interactions during the activation of the multimeric T-cell receptor. Remember, we're discussing here T-lymphocytes. So raft-sphingomyelin can be converted to ceramide. That's what the sphingomyelinase enzyme does. Uh, but not only ceramide, also you produce phosphonylcholine. And the action of the sphingomyelinase enzyme is what gives you those two products. Ceramides, once they're generated, of course, are composed of a sphingosine base and a fatty acid. The sphingosine base itself has fatty acid associated with it. It's a um, basically a trans-palmitoleic acid associated with a serine residue. So you have that and then bound to another fatty acid. And that can be a variable chain length and level of unsaturation. We went through that in great detail in the spring and summer as well. But the point here I'm making is that ceramides are far more hydrophobic than sphingomyelin because you've lost that phosphonocholine group and that makes that sphingomyelin far more polar. So when it does, when ceramides generated, um, you get a, a tremendous increase in in-situ lipid interactions at the hydrophobic level. And this hydrophobic interaction can then self-associate to form unique trafficking microdomain structures just from the activity of that one enzyme that was actually carried to that environment, that membrane environment, through previously generated rafts, which have ceramide, sphingomyelin, cholesterol, and phospholipids of the glycerol backbone nature. Okay. So I wanted to bring that up initially to get us in, in, inured into this. Now, we've been talking about a paper published in Cell Research, volume 30, that was published just this year in 2020, a couple months, well, actually in the summer, um, let's recap what this paper is about. We told you before, distinct T-cell activation states require metabolic reprogramming compatible with their functional demands. And the transition between the various states, that is the metabolic states, is accompanied by an active reprogramming of a nested set of metabolic pathways that will trigger and conduct along a teleological framework the differentiation and development of those T-cell lineages to carry out specific functions. So you have naive T-cells. They rapidly will rewire metabolic networks upon that TCR activation with APC. And then that will meet a demand that will be subsequently allowed to go through clonal expansion and indeed throughout that process, epigenetic remodeling at the chromatin level. 
Activated effector T cells express and engage, of course, unique transcription factors. We talked about these also at great length during the summer and the fall. And each of those transcription factors will then give you a nested set of expressed genes and that they, they will therefore carry out and follow specific differentiation pathways. Now, aging increases the relative abundance of long-lived memory T cells. And recall that one of the characteristics of these T cells is that they're poised to react just like any card-carrying uh, professional T cell. They're poised to react upon stimulation of their cogent TCR, T-cell receptor. Now, distinct from naive T cells, remember that uh, memory cells use glucose and engage in aerobic glycolysis through the TCA, electron transport chain oxidative phosphorylation, as opposed to lactic acid fermentation, okay? So remember when we went through this whole thing about uh, homolactic fermentation in naive T cells when they're first turned on by the TCR via the APC interaction. But what I'm telling you is memory cells, they'll use glucose, they'll engage in aerobic glycolysis, but they'll run the carbon through the TCA and the reducing power through the electron transport chain and then the electrons and protons all the way through the synthesis of ATV, ATP via oxide phosphorylation. So that's a distinction. So acylipids that are synthesized and stored as triacylglycerol will be ready when the TCR, that is the T cell receptor, is indeed activated by the APC, MHC antigen presentation. Okay. So uh, this is a really critical distinction between the naive T cells and the memory T cells. And I'm, again, I'm mapping this onto aging. Remember how aging is related to hypoimmune and hyperimmune responses, that once you lose the regulation of the immune response itself, such as the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines or the regulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines and the suppression of them via T-regulatory cells, once you lose that regulation, coordinated regulation, which can happen more with a T-memory cell than with naive cells or with freshly differentiated T-helper cells, that's when you can lose the homeostasis of the system. And when you do that, you can lead to tissue damage or you can lead actually to cell proliferation, like in a hypoimmune response, which can lead to oncogenic events and tumors. Okay, and that's how that links back into the aging process and the fact that you get autoimmune disorders and you get an increase in um, tumorigenesis as you age. Okay, and it's linked to lipids, you see. I brought that in already several times, but I wanted you to notice that that had to do with oxidation of fatty acids. Now, primary activating signals from the TCR and the co-stimulatory receptors drive many of these metabolic adaptations. And that's all occurring during, during the T-cell responsive staging. Now, that's a top-down control of, meta, of metabolic protein expression. So it's all transcriptionally regulated. And once you get protein expression, you get change in function. And all that's done through signal transduction cascades. That gene transcription then is following. It's, it's the sequelae to that signal transduction cascade. And essentially, it establishes a framework through which all the different biochemical pathways can be tuned up 
and regulated simultaneously from a top-down controlling mechanism. So once you knock back the signaling, you're able to slow down the generation of that um, biochemical pathway activation. That's different from bottom up, which we're going to get to in a moment. Now, we've talked about this already about three episodes ago, but I'm just reminding you. Now, in addition to extracellular signals, here's where it becomes a distinction. Metabolites regulate even the same signal transduction domains and networks that does the top down, but they do it from the bottom up. So that layer of regulation by metabolites these, is called in the literature the bottom-up metabolic signaling. And it simply means that metabolites directly modify the activity of a signaling effector system and can therefore indirectly alter gene expression. So this is like a real-time interaction. Once you've turned the system on, the system itself becomes auto-regulated by what these authors are calling a bottom-up. This isn't anything new, by the way. Biochemists always deal with the fact that metabolism controls itself. But for people that study specific cell lineage differentiation, physiological activity, like immunologists, this may seem like brand new territory. But we biochemists have been uh, well aware of this ever since we left the prokaryotic bacterial biochemistry of the 50s and 60s. So we've been, we've been studying this for a really long time. There's nothing new. So these authors emphasize, and of course they're correct, metabolites are going to be regulators of signaling effector molecules, and the mechanism they use can be direct or indirect. Okay, And basically what you do is you change the profile of what proteins are, are actually active at the right stoichiometric ratios, along with their substrates and products, to carry out specific sequences of events, which are biochemical pathways and signal transduction cascades and even gene expression, and then after gene expression, splicing and differentiation and post-translational modifications and the epibolic movement of proteins around. And then all of that biophysics about how lipid layers are changed and altered by interacting with enzymes and by interacting simply with other lipids, uh, having envelopes turn inside out, for example, and then that whole inside out process, completely reorganizing all the proteins that are embedded in the membrane and allow those proteins either to act as signaling molecules, transcription factors like the, the sterile receptor uh, 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 binding protein pathway that we talked about a while back, or indeed completely reorient how intraorganellar trafficking is occurring with all the other lipids, proteins, and low molecular mass compounds. So the lipid membrane system itself is a tremendous dynamic here. And I, because I'm a lipid biochemist, I always want to bring that up to the fore of our discussion, not because I'm just you know, keying in on what I study, but because that's fundamentally lost in a lot of the scientific literature, because many people don't study biochemistry as a lipid biochemist. We're a very rare breed and our literature resides separately in many ways, or when it does get into the mainstream literature, it's often diffuse because it has to be used to generate an argument for something else, like a physiological response. You see a lot of lipid papers uh, discussing inborn errors of metabolism or 
how lipids seem to be dysfunctional in a way that, that um, it seems like surprise to the authors, but it's no surprise to lipid biochemists. It's not that they're dysfunctional, it's just that lipids, because there are so many different molecular species of lipids and there are any of the other organic molecules in the cell, and because they have this distinct feature of being both amphipathic and hydrophobic, uh, and switching really easily from one mode to another in terms of classical interactions, chemical interactions, um, it allows lipids to do a lot more of the groundwork. They're like the infantry in the cell. They're doing all these behind the scenes activities, completely changing and mobilizing all the other potential fates of that cell lineage, right? Now, including uh, gene transcription as we've We've covered many times in this podcast. So paper published, again, this is the same one we've talked about before, this biological open. Let me tell you more about this paper. I really liked it because, and I, and I looked for a paper that was going to help me describe this and discuss this in authentic biochemistry. So that's why I found it. I did a search. The name of the paper tells you why I found it and like it and why I'm using it here. The name of the paper, or the, the title of the paper is Acid Sphingomyelinus Regulates the Localization and Trafficking of palmitylated proteins. Now, you know that proteins can be covalently modified with fatty acids, fatty acylipids, and that palmitate is often esterified via either an oxygen ester or a thioester to proteins. We've already talked about this, right? Palmitate is that saturated C16 carbon uh, fatty acid. So when you, but uh, and you may not remember, but palmitylation of proteins allows them to be transferred into membranous systems. So you have, a, let's say, a soluble aqueous protein, an enzyme or something like that, or a signaling molecule or a cooperating adapter molecule for some huge um, complex that's, that's residing in the membrane. Let's say it's a receptor complex that needs 30 or 40 different proteins. Some of those proteins may be quite water-soluble, and how do they make it in the membrane? Well, one of the ways, besides trafficking via endocytosis and movement within a membrane raft, is simply by adding a fatty acid covalent modification. That greatly alters their um, hydrophobicity, but also alters their migration and tendency to associate with specific membranes, with specific lipid microdomains. This is exactly how you get proteins to move in and out of membranes without changing their primary structure. That is, without needing an entire new gene to be able to intercalate and make a lot of alpha helices through the membrane, right? Make a lot of passes through the membrane so they intercalate into the membrane. Just by adding a fatty acid, they're able to interdigitate in that membrane and then carry out their functions. And then removal of that fatty acid allows them to move back into a, let's say, a more sequestered environment where they're not functional any longer, yet the protein's still available when needed. So you don't have to have all fresh transcription, translation, or translational modification. Every time you need that particular protein, that can be reversibly palmitylated. Okay. So back to the paper. They use mass spectroscopy to determine the composition of detergent-resistant membrane fractions. Now, they're called DRIM or DRM. Now, why are they looking at DRMs? Detergent-resistant fractions tend to be these microdomain rafts, okay? They're resistant to detergents because of the kind of hydrophobic interactions that are occurring within that membrane raft. That is, you have highly hydrophobic lipids and less amphipathic lipids. So you lose a lot of those 
polar head groups in these kind of microdomains. So that makes those lipid domains highly resistant to detergent because they can't interact with detergent, which has often got to work through an aqueous solvent system to get to the membrane. That's the simplest answer to it. There's more to it than that, obviously. So while more than 100 acid sphingomyelinase sensitive detergent resistant membrane fractions, which have proteins, have been identified in given cell lineages that they're looking at in this paper, they reveal that a major fraction of those proteins, about 60% of them, okay, so that's about 60 proteins because you're talking about 100 total, are actually palmitylated. And they include a tremendous amount of kinases and RAS family GTPases and RAB family GTPases and proteins that are involved in, in the uh, frank vesicular trafficking. And those include the SNAP proteins and the syntaxins. Now I've talked about all those proteins before in their various contexts in just straightforward biochemical pathway analysis, signal transduction analysis, and disease states, right? Talked a lot about the RAB GTPases and the RAS GTPases, for example, in liver cancer. We spent a lot of time on those in that, in those, what, probably 10 lectures I did on liver cancer in the fall. But now we're telling you, and I, in fact, I did elucidate this when I was discussing them in the liver cancer uh, episodes, that these, these proteins themselves can be farnesylated, right? Farnesyl is, of course, going to be um, a prenolipid association, but they can also be palmitylated or they can be palmitylated and farnesylated, okay? And this changes then their um, unit interaction within the cell via movement in and out of different membranous systems and therefore encountering different substrates and products and different interacting proteins, allowing for a complete new sequence of events that will occur within the cell simply by that palmitylation of that protein. Okay, so I can't emphasize how important that is and how that was lost as a subtlety for decades in biochemical research because it's freely reversible. And just logically, people had not considered that the addition of a fatty acid to a protein would have such a tremendous biological function. They believed it could change the biophysics, that is the solubility of the protein and trafficking the protein, interaction of the protein with other systems, uh, membranous and not, sure. But the biological functions are what had to be, that, that nested bit of information had to be much more deeply examined than when it is. What we're finding is that you have a tremendous change in function when you add covalently modified palmitic acid to those proteins. And that's what we're getting at here. Okay. All right. So, there's a critical role of acid sphingomyelinase in the regulation and trafficking of palmitylated proteins. Okay, now this is a new idea, new concept here, okay? This is different than what we're telling you before. And again, this is coming from this paper, Bi uh, Biology Open, uh, open journal, which um, you can read without having a paywall. Now, this, these people aren't the first one that noticed this. They're just emphasizing it. <laughs> now, they're going to tell you they found that inactivation of acid sphingomyelinase causes a number of proteins, and they've looked at several, like the SNAP proteins, the LIN proteins, um, the G proteins, some of the CD proteins in the membrane surface. They cause them to disappear, okay? So if you inactivate, 
the acid sphingomyelinase. All of a sudden, you see a lot of these proteins that normally are ending up in the membrane, plasma membrane, aren't there. And concurrently, what they found, it promotes the accumulation of those proteins in the cytosol. Okay? So that makes sense. If they're not going to be in the membrane, where else are they going to be? Well, I guess they're going to be in the cytosol, right? So this is now telling you something that I've said before when I discuss membrane rafts, but they're putting it together for the first time. Well, maybe not the first time in literature, but they're emphasizing it because that's what their paper is all about, that this sphingomyelinase activity is actually linked to the pomidulation frequency of the proteins that end up in the plasma membrane. That's the point that's being made here. And, and you can see it already without uh, going through all the other detail, although we will go through the detail. But what I'm saying is you can see is that very obvious. If you have an enzyme like an acid sphingomyelinase that breaks down sphingomyelin, producing a highly hydrophobic microdomain in the membrane in situ, ceramide, um, that you're going to lead then to a microdomain acting as an interacting system to allow for it to pick up, sweep up proteins and gain palmitylated proteins in a larger mole fraction so that you generate an entire different um, functional and active domain on the membrane surface, right? You get that just by firing first an astrosphingomyelinase, making the right environment for palmitylated proteins to either migrate there, be collected there in that microdomain, right, that membrane raft, or actually be released and resegregated and reform into a totally different domain with a different nested set of biological activities. Right? So two different lipid activities occurring at the same time with, with um, different proteins, not the astrosphingomyelinase and not the palmitoyl transferases, but other, other proteins that are found in the membrane that are carrying out all of this endocytosis activity, such as the SNAP proteins and the LIN proteins and the GTPases, you see. So that's what I'm talking about, the subtle um, complexity of this system. It is far more complex than what looks like just looking at the expression of proteins and even the trafficking of the proteins. All of the real work is being done at the level of lipid-lipid interactions at the hydrophobic level, okay? All right, so let's go back to this. So they use SNAP23 as a protein model, and they show that the acid sphingomyelinase deficiency leads to SNAP23 accumulation, not in the cytosol, but in the Golgi. And they say that can be phenocopied by treating cells with a pomidulation inhibitor or indeed by a mutation in the amino acids that would become palmitylated in the SNAP23. So see what they've linked together. They're showing you that they, if they lose acid sphingomyelinase, they lose SNAP23 ability to make it to the plasma membrane, so it accumulates in the Golgi. And this is a phenocopied, or it's similar to simply treating the cells with agents that prevent or inhibit palmitylation. Okay, so acid sphingomyelinase is associated with pomidulation, and then therefore the residency of this SNAP protein, which is super important for the endocytic, exocytic pathway in the cell, which is much more generic, right? Then there's just the enzyme activities of the sphingomyelinase, the pomidulotransferase. So 
they found the same thing with the SNAP23 proteins, another one of these key proteins in, in uh, moving around uh, in endocytosis, and that's the LIN protein. And they say it's possible that the estrogen deficiency caused a defect in the palmitylation, and that could account for the fact that they're sort of lodged in Golgi transport, transport vesicles as a defect, right? But they ultimately show that ASM doesn't affect palmitylation itself, sensu stricto. They found, which again, if you read out as a lipid biochemist, which you already know, because I explained it to you, that ASM, that is the uh, acid sphingomyelinase inactivation, leads to a trafficking defect for those proteins to exit out of this system of endocytosis, okay? This trans, just transmigration activity. And that is actually subsequent to the palmitylation, okay? So you get the idea now that you're altering, you're sorting, you're, you're altering the sorting of palmitylated proteins by corrupting the acid sphingomyelinase-mediated production of ceramide cholesterol-rich membrane rafts. Okay, so I'm going to leave you with that now. We're almost out of time. And I want to make sure that we can get back to uh, a full, we're going to get right back into this next time. I'm really going to try to do another lecture today, even though it is New Year's Day. Um, I've got nothing better to do. So this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from brand new year for Authentic Biochemistry 2021. Let's hope that 21 is going to be a good year. So I'm saying from Authentic Biochemistry to you, my wonderful listeners, bye for now.